Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the Cardio Nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardio Nerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Cardio Nerds, we are extremely honored to be joined by colleagues and fellows from Cardiology Fellowship Training Program at the University of Texas Southwestern. We will be talking about a very illustrative case and learning together. Joining us are Drs. Shreya Rao, Dr. Sonia Shah, and Dr. Nick Hendren. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Shreya Rao. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow here at UT Southwestern. I'm Sonia Shah. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow. And I'm Nick Hendren. I'm a third-year fellow and the chief cardiology fellow. So we're super excited to be here today, and it's not just to fulfill my dream of being a podcast host. We're also incredibly grateful to the Cardio Nerds for giving us an opportunity to share our experiences here at UT Southwestern with all of you, and maybe even nerd out a little bit. Guys, it is a pleasure having you. This is Dan Amminder chiming in here, and this is a great start. You guys are from Dallas. Just tell me one thing about Dallas that I need to know. Dallas is a great place to live and raise a family in. Coming to Dallas, I knew nothing about it when I came down here. The first time, the second time my wife had ever been to Texas was when we moved down here together. And now going on six years later, we have a 10-month-old daughter. And it really is just a jewel of a city and a tremendous place to, to work and raise a family. And I don't think the rest of the country appreciates it very often. I don't know how Nick just became so profound, but I was going to say tacos. Um, yeah, I had literally thought of tacos. Taco Tuesdays. Love it. Yeah. La Ventana. If you want a really good street taco, La Ventana. For this episode, guys, we're all hanging out together, having tacos, and um, maybe we can talk about our case. <laughs> carb loading. Yeah, no carbs and proteins, hopefully, and et cetera. <laughs> I hear you guys have an interesting case to share. Absolutely. We've always got great cases at Parkland Hospital. And while I love serving our veterans at one of the largest VAs and providing cutting-edge care at our university hospital, serving Dallas through our public hospital is always an incredible opportunity. And last month was no exception. We have this awesome case. Do you have a little bit of time for me to tell you about it? 
hours. <laughs> awesome. So let's jump right in then. So our gentleman was a 57-year-old man presenting with three months of symptoms, mostly progressive, mild dyspnea exertion, orthopnea, and some swelling in his legs that he really thought was mild. But just a few days prior to coming to the hospital, his symptoms suddenly became a lot worse. He got short of breath trying to sleep at night and had to sleep sitting up. He could only walk about 20 feet before he had to stop because he became so short of breath, and his legs became a lot more swollen. Importantly, he'd not seen a doctor in over 30 years. He wasn't really a fan. And with a detailed review of systems, he had a little bit of nausea and then also had about 30 pounds of unintentional weight loss over the past couple of months. Since he hadn't seen a doctor in so long, he didn't have any past medical history or past surgical history. He didn't take any medicines, supplements, or over-the-counter vitamins. He was a little bit hazy on his family history, but from what he could recall, there was no family history of sudden death, cardiac problems, or autoimmune issues. He, in his own words, was trying to live a clean life, and so he didn't use tobacco, didn't drink alcohol, and didn't use any illicit drugs. He did endorse a preference for male partners and was in a stable, long-term relationship. So being the start of the new year with new medical students, we tried to be pretty thorough with our physical exam. When we met him in the emergency department, he was afebrile and tachypnic, breathing about 24 times per minute, but he was saturating well on room air. He had a regular heart rate in the 80s and a normal BMI. His upper extremity blood pressures were 124 over 30, with lower extremity blood pressures of 200 over 30. Ooh, okay, Nick, I have to stop you right there because that is an impressive pulse pressure. We don't often see a blood pressure of 120 over 30, but I like to break down the causes for a wide pulse pressure into two categories. First, conditions that increase the systolic pressure. That could be anything that causes a high output state like thyrotoxicosis or increased arterial stiffness. And number two, any condition that decreases the diastolic pressure. And that's typically due to drops in vascular resistance that we see in patients with AVMs or sepsis or aortic regurgitation. We also see a large difference between the upper and lower extremity blood pressures in your patient, with the lower extremity blood pressures being much higher, which really argues against an aortic dissection and could fit a little bit better with valvular pathologies. Shreya, that's a fantastic pickup. And so moving on, with auscultation, he had bilateral crackles, or RALs as some like to say. His jugular veins were distended with a positive hepatojugular reflux. His cardiac exam was notable for a soft S1 and a prominent S3 gallop. There were three distinct murmurs on exam. A systolic ejection murmur, loudest at the left upper sternal border. An early decrescendo diastolic murmur that terminated in mid-diastole. And a separate late diastolic low-pitch murmur that rated into the patient's axilla. He had bounding, hammer-like pulses in his radial arteries, and he had tepid lower extremities with one-plus pitting edema bilaterally. Finally, there were no rashes, and he had a normal abdominal, neurological, and musculoskeletal exam. So that is a lot to digest. What do you guys think so far? Well, Nick, I gotta say, I am pretty impressed with your chief-level physical exam skills. So to summarize, we have a 57-year-old man with no significant past medical history presenting with three months of progressive dyspnea and chest pain. His exam is notable for an impressively wide pulse pressure, and he has bounding pulses, a diastolic murmur, as well as clinical signs and symptoms concerning for acute heart failure. In terms of etiology of his acute heart failure, the water hammer pulses, 
wide pulse pressure, and the diastolic murmur that you describe paint a really compelling picture for valvular heart failure, specifically severe aortic regurgitation. Did you guys happen to get a point of care or cardiac ultrasound in the emergency room? Hey, 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 now, we'll get to that soon enough. Let's finish up the rest of our workup. Shreya, what other thoughts do you have? So I totally agree with Sonia. The early diastolic murmur you heard sounds like a classic AI murmur. Physiologically, the textbook murmur that we associate with AI results from the large pressure differential between the aorta and the left ventricle at the onset of diastole, which creates a high-velocity regurgitant jet that's audible at the beginning of diastole. The late diastolic rumble is eponymously called the Austin Flint murmur and results from the AI jet hitting against the anterior mitral leaflet and creating turbulent flow. Pro tip here though, while we're all taught about the diastolic murmur of AI, many patients with AI will also present with a prominent systolic ejection murmur. And that's caused by the large stroke volume produced by a volume overloaded LV that gets ejected at a rapid force in mid-systole. For those of us still getting used to navigating our diaphragm and bell, this can be a lot easier to recognize. Ooh, good tip. Overall though, your clinical exam findings fit really well with the hemodynamic sequelae of aortic regurgitation. While we're waiting for the echo, could you just give us some baseline labs, a chest x-ray, and maybe even an EKG? Absolutely, let me pull those up here. So his basic metabolic panel was notable for hyponatremia with a sodium of 126 an elevated BUN at 62, and a creatinine of 1.34. His AST and ALT were mildly elevated at 148 and 70, respectively. He had a normal albumin and normal total protein. His white blood cell count was about 14,000, with a normal hemoglobin and platelets. A urine analysis and urine toxicology were also normal. And importantly, an HIV test and a TB test were also negative. His troponin was mildly abnormal, but flat and not consistent with an acute coronary syndrome. However, his NT-proBNP was markedly elevated at nearly 25,000, with normal being less than 1,000. Oof, well, I guess we definitely called the heart failure component. But those are some worrisome labs, even leaving the NT-proBNP aside. The hyponatremia is likely related to the vascular congestion that you've already described, while the lactate is worrisome for a low output state. I'm actually more curious about that white count, though. While we suspect aortic insufficiency, we really need to be thinking about what might have caused this patient's valvular disease. Fortunately, the list for acquired aortic insufficiency isn't long and includes two categories. Primary valve disease, such as infective endocarditis, rheumatic heart disease, and valvular degeneration and secondary aortic insufficiency due to aortic root pathologies, such as aortic dissection or aortic aneurysm pulling the leaflets apart. While the leukocytosis doesn't confirm an infectious etiology, infective endocarditis is definitely high on my differential diagnosis at this point, especially in the setting of a 30-pound weight loss. Did your team happen to check blood cultures? Absolutely, we did. And while cultures were in process, we made sure to cover with broad-spectrum antibiotics because not treating infective endocarditis can rapidly become catastrophic. We also got a chest x-ray, which showed that the aorta was mildly enlarged or ectatic, but not markedly abnormal. It also showed mild cardiomegaly, pulmonary vascular congestion, and bilateral pleural effusions. Lastly, we got an EKG that demonstrated normal sinus rhythm, a heart rate in the 80s, left atrial enlargement, 
and borderline left ventricular hypertrophy without any ischemic ST or T wave changes. So what do you think, guys? Is that all that information helpful? Yeah, I love it, Nick. So this is one of those amazing examples of just how much you can get from a good exam and some basic diagnostic studies. Using the differential Sonia built for us in terms of causes of AI, I'd say that the finding of a dilated aorta on the chest x-ray raises my suspicion for secondary causes. But we certainly can't rule out primary valvular disease or mixed presentation without some more information. Great point. Digging in more broadly to the causes of secondary aortic valve disease, we want to think about a thoracic aneurysm or dissection, syphilitic aortitis, vasculitis, and genetic aortopathies like Marfan syndrome and other connective tissue disorders. Sonia, those are all great points. And I'm really glad you mentioned this because many of our patients at Parkland have limited or no access to prior care and maintaining a very broad differential is incredibly important. We eventually did go back and make sure he did not have a bifid uvula, which you can see with Lloyd's Deed syndrome. Likewise, a careful physical exam did not reveal any findings consistent with Marfan syndrome or other genetic connective tissue diseases. And just to round it out, we made sure our patient didn't have a history of chest trauma, like you might see in a car accident. And at least to his knowledge, he'd never been hypertensive the few times he checked his blood pressure at Walgreens. Granted, he really hasn't seen a doctor in quite a while. That's really helpful. At this point, I think I'm still leaning towards an inflammatory or infectious etiology, but we need a CT angiography to definitively rule out aortic dissection. I just wanted to chime in here. I think, Sonia, it was you who broke down the differential diagnosis for aortic regurgitation between primary valvular disease and secondary to an aortopathy. And I love that breakdown. Another breakdown that I'd like to superimpose on that is the time course, because the differential diagnosis for an acute aortic regurgitation is just a little bit different from that of chronic aortic regurgitation. I like to think of it as a two-by-two matrix. On one hand, is it primary or secondary? And on the other hand, is it acute or is it chronic? And so you can imagine that there are a differential diagnosis in each of those boxes. And so an acute secondary cause of AI may be somebody with an aortic dissection that dissects into the aortic valve and causes acute aortic regurgitation. And as you guys mentioned very nicely earlier, especially with this white count, an acute primary cause of aortic regurgitation could be a patient who has acute infective endocarditis with a leaflet perforation. Whereas if you think about a chronic presentation, which is it's not necessarily in this case, a chronic primary valvular ideology could be somebody with rheumatic heart disease and aortic regurgitation and a whole host of other causes. But in this particular setting, I'm just thinking about causes that lead to an abnormal valve where at some point the patient has some change either from a aerotopathy or a superimposed infection or something along those lines. Yeah. And uh, I totally love both of these classifications of aortic regurg and it's very helpful. And I think this case really highlights already, obviously we don't have a diagnosis yet. Uh, we're going to learn more about the case, you know, but as I'm munching tacos and trying to also pay attention, I'm noticing, I'm actually, I'm a very shy eater. I don't like to eat in public, but, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, I'm noticing that uh, we, we often create cases to basically highlight different disease presentations. And what we really recognized early is that we cannot make up cases in cardiology. And that's because everything, you, you can't just make up a case because you're definitely going to miss some key pieces of the puzzle that really belong there. And so just to reflect on this uh, gentleman's case, so you have this element of chronicity that's reflected in his symptoms that's a little bit more chronic. But then we have, as Nick, you pointed out, there's something that escalated recently to bring him into the hospital, which is the case with so many of our patients. 
And that is corroborated by some of the data here and also the physical exam with the edema that has been picking up. But also you see this hyponatremia, AKI, LFT abnormalities that go with this picture of either low flow or congestive hepatopathy. There's just so many things, the ProBMP, the low level lactate that's elevated though. There's so many things that if you were just making up whatever this case diagnosis is going to be, be very challenging. Even though if you make up a case of AI, you can you know, go look up the murmur and actually build a case around the murmur. But in, in reality, there's so many other components that obviously we can't touch on every single thing because of time, but just to appreciate the depth of this case, and you can really tell the authentic nature of it. Yeah, and that's a really important point because if you look at the individual pieces of information, the widened pulse pressure, signs of the wide pulse pressure, like a water hammer pulse, and all these things tell us this is a chronic presentation because patients with acute AI don't have the remodeling that leads to the widened pulse pressure. And so this is definitely somebody who's had problems for a while and something changed. But uh, Nick, you have an echo to share? Absolutely. So just to finish off with that CT of his aorta. So that did show us that he had an ascending aortic aneurysm at four and a half centimeters, but without a dissection flap. And I know, Sonia, you'd already been interested very much so in those echo results. So I'll go ahead and let you pull up those echo results. Yeah, sorry, Nick. I got a little too excited and pulled it up. All right. Uh, so let's take a look here. It looks like the left ventricle is mildly dilated with mildly reduced systolic function. I'd say that EF is somewhere around 40 to 45%. So all of this is really important because it touches back on what we were just discussing with acute and chronic severe AI. The echo findings in acute and chronic severe AI actually vary quite a lot. In acute AI, the ventricle hasn't had time to accommodate to the new increased volume it's seen from the aorta. As a result, really small regurgitant volumes can cause a significant increase in the LV and diastolic pressure, and the diastolic aortic pressure and LV pressure equilibrate really quickly. That's why patients with acute severe AI may not have impressive diastolic murmurs or even widened pulse pressures. In contrast, the LV in patients with chronic AI have had a lot more time to dilate and develop eccentric hypertrophy, so these ventricles can handle a much larger regurgitant volume from the aorta. Initially, that extra LV volume and increased LV and diastolic pressure result in a higher cardiac output just based on the Frank Starling principle. Over time, though, the maladaptive LV remodeling can lead to systolic dysfunction, and that's associated with a higher mortality in patients with severe AI. That's why the ACC AHA guideline indication for surgical aortic valve replacement in patients with asymptomatic chronic AI is based on the 50-50 rule. Patients with an EF less than 50% or an end systolic diameter greater than 50 millimeters should be referred for surgical evaluation. So in our patient's case, the mildly dilated ventricle suggests more of an acute on chronic process, which really fits with the patient's duration of symptoms and the history Nick gave us. That's an awesome review, Shreya. Uh, so now let's get to the good part. This aortic valve definitely seems like the root of the problem. Yikes. No pun intended. <laughs> The aortic valve is... <laughs> I knew you guys said that one. <laughs> oh, damn, we found them. They are cardio nerves. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so the aortic valve is tri-leaflet, mildly thickened, but it seems to be opening well. I don't see any evidence of a perforation, flail leaflet, or an obvious vegetation. We'll have these images available on the cardio nerds website if anyone wants to check back in later. So from what you're saying, Sonia, it really just doesn't sound like infectious bacterial endocarditis is the most likely diagnosis at this point. Agreed. 
So on Doppler, this looks like severe aortic regurgitation with a very dense, centrally directed jet. There's a sharp deceleration slope with flow terminating in mid to late diastole. Looking at the mitral valve, it appears structurally normal, but it looks like there's actually diastolic mitral regurgitation. So thinking back to the physical exam, these findings actually match really well, Sonia. With severe aortic regurgitation, the aortic diastolic pressure will decrease rapidly, leading to a shorter pressure halftime or more rapid deceleration slope. This rapid deceleration slope is caused by the same thing that makes the murmur end early in diastole, that is, equalization of pressure between the LV and the aorta. In fact, in some patients, the LV diastolic pressure gets so high that instead of blood filling the LV during all of diastole, it actually regurgitates back into the left atrium during late diastole. That's known as diastolic mitral regurgitation, and I think that's what you're looking at, Sonia. So it's no wonder our patient feels so bad. So the echo also confirms what we saw in the CT. The ascending aorta is mildly dilated without an obvious dissection flap. I'm also seeing holodiastolic flow reversal in the abdominal aorta, which is pretty much pathognomonic for severe aortic insufficiency. Wow, this is incredible echo findings. Really impressive and definitely classic. Uh, let's just kind of just dwell a little bit on that holodiastolic flow reversal. The way I think about it is, is we kind of described what's going on the, at the LV side a second ago with that diastolic MR. You pump out through the LV, we're ejecting through the aortic valve, we're shooting out through the aorta as we normally do. But then, because that aortic valve is totally not functional, so now we have diastolic relaxation of the ventricle, and it almost acts, you can think about it as like sucking the blood back in. And so you end up having blood that goes down, anterograde down the aorta, and then gets sucked back up, again, down and sucked back up, almost like what you see sort of with a balloon pump. And so that you end up seeing in the Doppler flow in the abdominal aorta, the descending aorta, you see the blood going down during diastole and then back up during systole down during diastole, and then back up during systole. And that is the finding that is corroborating with this. All ties into this basic pathophys of aortic regurgitation that we're kind of describing. All fits with why we feel the bounding pulse pressure and the associated physical exam findings. But these are just corroborating what we already know about the patient in a different place, in a different location. And I'll just add that as a cardio nerd, I love the echo, but sometimes you don't have it by you. And the physical exam equivalent of the diastolic flow reversal is the Dorosier sign, where you hear not just a systolic flow murmur, but also a diastolic murmur over the femoral artery when you compress it with the bell of the stethoscope. So hopefully we all have access to echoes and pocus ultrasounds, but there's also physical exam equivalents for many of these things. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So to sum up our echo findings, we have severe aortic regurgitation with a thickened aortic valve and a mildly dilated ascending aorta, which appears to be pulling the valve leaflets apart. The mildly dilated left ventricle suggests that this process may have been going on for a little while, but clinically, he's clearly in an acute decompensation. So more objective data, including a left and right heart catheterization, would be crucial at this point to help guide our management. Goodness, you guys are right on point. It's almost like you know this case or something. <laughs> we were really worried about him and his acute deterioration. So we quickly arranged to take him to the cath lab in the event that he required urgent surgery or inotropic support. So let's start with the left heart catheterization. Fortunately, he had no evidence of obstructive coronary artery disease. And with simultaneous catheters in both the aorta and the left ventricle, we confirm that left ventricular end diastolic pressure 
and the aortic diastolic pressures equalize during mid-diastole at about 40 millimeters of mercury. Normal is typically less than 15, so this was markedly elevated. Hey, Shreya, can I get your help to walk through the rest of this right heart catheterization? Totally. It's my favorite. For anyone who wants to follow along, these tracings will be available on the website as well. So our patient has an RA pressure of 19, an RV pressure of 75 over 23, and a PA pressure of 75 over 26 with a mean of 45. And that basically amounts to severely elevated right heart pressures. We also have a wedge pressure of 38 and an LV and diastolic pressure of 40. That's with an aortic pressure of 108 over 40, which indicates severely elevated left-sided filling pressures. And his fit cardiac output was 1.73 liters per minute with a cardiac index of one liter per minute per meter squared, which represents a severely reduced cardiac output. Man, that's a lot of severes. <laughs> Agreed. So in patients with acute heart failure, it's not unusual for us to see wedge pressures in the range of 20 to 30, but an LVDP of 40 is really elevated. And in this case, it's actually equal to the aortic diastolic pressure. That indicates that there's a hemodynamically significant communication between the aorta and the LV during diastole. And that just leads me to the diagnosis of decompensated severe AI based on the heart cath alone. Exactly right, Shreya. And as you also noted, his cardiac index was low, indicating he was definitely in cardiogenic shock. In addition to calling cardiothoracic surgery, any thoughts on the next steps for management of this patient? I want to just chime in with the hemodynamic numbers and make a connection to a theme that we've had in talking about all the structural abnormalities so far in the on the CardioNerds podcast. And we always talk about thinking about what is the structural problem and what is the hemodynamic consequence and so based on the physical exam and the echo, we know that there's a structural problem, which is the aortic regurgitation and the aortopathy. But the hemodynamic consequence here are extremely important to look into because these are the things that are going to drive the morbidity and mortality for these patients, right? And so if the hemodynamic consequences or the consequences of AI are going to be, like you pointed out, the LV dilation with the increased LV EDP and LV uh, end diastolic volume the pulmonary hypertension, which is essentially group two pulmonary hypertension in this case, and then elevated right-sided pressures with RV failure. And so all of these things are incrementally telling us that this patient is going to have increased morbidity and mortality from his aortic regurgitation and uh, intervening for the structural problem is going to be really important. And then my next major question for the group is, what do you prefer, aortic insufficiency or aortic regurgitation? I feel like I've gone back and forth over the years. I would defer to Dr. Peterson. She's our <laughs> valve expert, and uh, I value her opinion highly. <laughs> Guys, uh, yeah, I love AR. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure, I'm an AR guy, but because AI is artificial intelligence to me for whatever reason. So I'm AR. Also, I just love the word merge. You're in good company because the guidelines refer to it as aortic regurgitation as well. And so maybe we'll go for, with that for now. Okay, but okay. I might be in a different I, I, tomorrow. <laughs> I just wanted to add one more, uh, one more, one more uh, point here. You know, before I got into the cardiology game, when I thought of AR with the pulse pressure that's so high, I really thought of a hyperdynamic state, right? Where you have, you know, the heart is just pumping and it's coming back and pumping and it's coming back and pumping and it's coming back. And before I would have known what I was talking about, and I still have a lot of work to do to, to get to there. But before I would have appreciated it, I would have thought that the cardiac index would have been high where you're constantly like pumping out all that blood and it's coming back when you're pumping it out. But 
obviously we know that this cardiac index is incredibly low. And that tells us that the blood that's going out and coming back, even though there's a lot of pressure changes where you have a systolic pressure that's going up and a diastolic pressure that's going all the way down with this like a big pulse pressure, there's not a lot of movement of blood. There's actually more stasis than you think because blood is just getting shifted around, but it's not being circulated well around the body. I really appreciated this when we had a patient once that came in at our place with acute AR and terrible hemodynamic compromise and very different than this presentation that we're hearing about now. And we finally got her onto ECMO and basically her entire left ventricle was just full of clot. And it was something that I hadn't expected because of the tremendous amount of stasis. And then in the cath lab, seeing these patients, especially with acute aortic regurgitation, you're just seeing with the contrast just kind of like hang around in the LV. Let's say if you put the contrast in the aorta, it just gets shot right back into the LV and it doesn't really clear. And it just gives me the sense that the blood is kind of like swirling around, but it isn't really moving and circulating. And that's really highlighted by the fact that there might be a lot of pressure changes, but there's not a lot of flow. And that's a critical part to think about with aortic regurgitation and the management steps that you'll probably present going forward. And Dan, that is such an important point. I think a really important pearl to add there is that the sloshing of the blood back and forth, the the backward sloshing really is happening during diastole. And so the diastolic period is going to be amplified when the heart rate is low, and you can minimize diastole when the heart rate is high. And so naturally, these patients, especially in acute AI, tend to try to preserve their cardiac output by becoming tachycardic. And so that's a key manifestation. And so whenever we're managing aortic regurgitation, the things to avoid are anything that's going to blunt the heart rate, right? And so beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. And the most profound example of this is when I had a patient who had acute AR from infective endocarditis that was complicated by a root abscess. And he was trudging along and doing fine until he developed acute complete heart block, became bradycardic, and went into sudden shock. And all we did was put in an RV lead bump up his heart rate, and he was out of the shock immediately without addressing the valve problem at that point. Now, of course, he had surgery and did fine post-op, but in that setting, managing the heart rate was such an important piece of his management. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can tie all of this together as well, just kind of discussing some of the management tips we have for providers as well, taking care of acute aortic regurgitation or acute on chronic presentation with someone who's decompensated. I think the first thing is it can definitely be a tricky situation. You know, we're dealing with severe aortic regurgitation with decompensated low output heart failure and definitive treatment in this situation really comes down to getting this patient to the OR. But in the meantime, we can do some things to improve his hemodynamics as Amit had mentioned. So first, his pulmonary congestion and his severely elevated filling pressures can be improved by reducing preload. But this is tricky since you can't normalize the LV and diastolic pressure without also dropping your diastolic blood pressure to the same value. Second, medications that reduce afterload would be helpful to decrease the volume of regurgitation from the aorta back into the left ventricle. And lastly, just as Amit had mentioned, to further decrease the volume of regurgitation, it's important to avoid medications that might result in bradycardia, such as beta blockers. As Amit mentioned, the bradycardia would increase the diastolic filling time, meaning more time for regurgitation back into the heart. Remember that the tachycardia seen in acute aortic regurgitation is usually compensatory. So for this reason, a beta-1 agonist such as dobutamine could be helpful to further augment the heart rate and also provide inotropic support. 
but this has to be balanced with the risk of tachyarrhythmias and increased cardiac demand. Ultimately, however, there really is no medical treatment for decompensated symptomatic aortic regurgitation, and this patient really just needs to get to surgery. Well, Amit and Sonia, you both predicted exactly what we wanted to do. And so in our patient, we started to manage his deranged hemodynamics with a furosemide drip to try to decrease pulmonary vascular congestion. We started nitroprusside to reduce his afterload and initiated a dibutamine drip to augment his failing heart and try to increase his heart rate. As we mentioned before, we did obtain blood cultures and started broad-spectrum antibiotics. We consulted cardiothoracic surgery urgently, and fortunately, his bacterial cultures were ultimately negative. At this point, we really felt like his severe aortic regurgitation was related both to a primary valve problem, as evidenced by the thickened leaflets with failure of the leaflets to coapt, as well as a secondary mechanism with that moderately dilated aorta that further pulled those abnormal leaflets apart, leading to increased regurgitation. Awesome. The thing I still find interesting is that although we have severe aortic regurgitation, it's still not really clear to me what the etiology of his dilated aortic root and valvular dysfunction are. Going back to our differential diagnosis for causes of secondary aortic regurgitation, this does not appear to be bacterial endocarditis, aortic dissection, genetic aortopathies, bicuspid aortic valve, or rheumatic in nature. While we don't know if he has chronic hypertension, since he hasn't really followed with the doctor, syphilitic aortitis should really be considered. I love that, Sonia. That is a Parkland-Strong differential. Indeed. So historically, syphilitic aortitis was much more common than it is now. But endemic cases of syphilis still occur, and the disease prevalence has actually increased over the last decade in the United States. Aortitis and myocarditis resulting from syphilis are likely underappreciated in the community. And this could explain both the aortic aneurysm and the intrinsic aortic valve pathologies for our patient. That's right on point. Again, Sonia. So as you suggested, we did check an RPR, which was markedly positive at 1 to 512. We consulted our infectious disease colleagues who initiated treatment with daily intravenous penicillin for three weeks. Because he was so hemodynamically tenuous, we deferred a lumbar puncture, and he was empirically treated for neurosyphilis. Importantly, thinking back to our left heart cath, it's really important to exclude osteal coronary artery obstruction, which is associated with syphilitic ortitis. If present, this would also have required coronary artery bypass grafting. Ultimately, our patient underwent an uncomplicated prosthetic valve replacement and aortic root annuloplasty and reconstruction. During surgery, the surgeons described his aorta as inflamed, adherent, and woody, all of which fit our clinical diagnosis of active inflammation due to syphilitic aortitis. Now, our patient elected to have a bioprosthetic valve rather than a mechanical valve because he did not want to take warfarin long-term. Fortunately, he continued to do very well after surgery and had an uncomplicated course. He's done great during his periodic follow-up, and during his periodic screenings of his aortic aneurysm, the aorta remains stable in size. Incredibly, the pathology from the aortic valve and the aortic root demonstrated a large foci of necrosis, lymphoplasmocytic inflammation, and neo-revascularization consistent with syphilitic aortitis. Notably, spirochetes are rarely seen even with active infection, and so their absence in this case was not unsurprising or unexpected. Wow, Nick, that's really a remarkable case. And I'm really glad to hear that this patient is doing well. Yeah, we were really happy that Despite him being so sick, we were able to get him feeling better and back home where he ultimately wanted to be. 
So just a couple of quick points about syphilitic irritatus, since it's probably not something we're used to seeing all that often. The prevalence of syphilitic irritatus is low, but as you said, it's probably underappreciated in the community since we don't think to look for it all that often. Important clues to making the diagnosis include an aortic aneurysm without clear risk factors, such as smoking or hypertension, and a positive RPR. Although cases have been reported in patients without impressive RPRs years after an initial infection, this is an important clue for our patients. Recognition of this disease is important to ensure adequate treatment with penicillin and prevent further late-stage complications of syphilis. Second, cardiac involvement in late-presenting syphilis is common, and it includes both myocarditis and, although controversial, damage directly to the aortic valves. Syphilis leads to aortic aneurysms through inflammation and destruction of both the vasovasorum and adventitial layers of the aorta. For our patient, again, it appears his AR was both the result of primary and secondary causes in this case. And lastly, consulting infectious disease is always advised if your clinical suspicion is high, as infections need to be reported both to public health and you need to ensure adequate treatment and follow-up for your patients. And while penicillin is the definitive treatment, Long-term follow-up includes periodic imaging of the aorta to monitor for any progression of aortic root dilation. Now, unfortunately, most of this data comes from the 1960s and before, and so we don't really have any clear guidelines about when or how often we need to re-image patients like this and whether or not they might ever need to be retreated with penicillin, although from what we can tell, one treatment series should be enough. That is an amazing case and, and just so much good learning in it, Nick. But honestly, you know, we talked about Parkland earlier, but I'm most happy to hear that you guys were able to do so much for this patient. We don't really celebrate or take pride in the fact that our healthcare system lets patients like this gentleman slip through the cracks with little prior access to healthcare. But I know you do too. We, we just take a lot of pride in the work we do to provide care at Parkland for patients uh, when we do get an opportunity to make contact with them. It's why both of us came here for residency. It's why we're still here five years later. And even though our clinical work is just a small dent in this really, really big problem, I really like that we get to try to move the needle a little bit when we're trying to provide acute and chronic care to our local community. Yeah. You know, and Trey, like you, I really cherish the diversity of our Parkland patients. And one of my first cardiology clinics, I saw eight patients and they spoke seven different languages. Now, that's, of course, not the case in every clinic, but Parkland is a huge melting pot of cultures, backgrounds, and ethnicities. And several times per year, we meet amazing patients with diagnoses such as uncorrected congenital heart defects that are occasionally cyanotic, Chagas cardiomyopathy, and TB pericardial constriction, amongst all the other usual suspects in cardiology. In our metroplex of nearly 7.5 million patients, or people, with a 25% uninsured rate, it's always humbling to take leadership of their care, educate our patients, and advocate for their health. We're so fortunate that we can enroll any of our patients living in Dallas into our Parkland Financial Assistance Program. And that really functions like an immediate healthcare insurance that allows our patients to receive medicines, procedures, and follow up in our cardiology continuity clinic at little to no cost to our patients. This is just an incredible gift that our community provides to Dallas. And at Parkland, we're not just satisfied with being a good public hospital. We aim to be, and we really are, a great hospital for all of our patients. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more, Nick. As clinical fellows, Parkland has also provided us with an incredible training experience. At UT Southwestern, we're pretty lucky to have the opportunity to care for three very distinct patient populations, including our veterans at the VA hospital, our underserved patients at Parkland, 
and patients with complex cardiac conditions at the Clements University Hospital. A comprehensive training experience was something I really valued when choosing a fellowship program. But having finished a year of training now, I've realized it's really the people here at UT that make our program special. Whether it's Dr. Grodin enthusiastically lecturing us on cardiac amyloid, Dr. Collins patiently guiding us through transesophageal echoes, Dr. Luna colorfully drawing out hemodynamic tracings, or Dr. Wynn methodically reviewing intracardiac electrograms. It's clear that the faculty genuinely care about fellow education and share our goal of providing outstanding patient care. This is so great to hear. And like I said earlier, the friends I've had who have worked in Parkland in the past uh, really have echoed all the things that you've all mentioned about the healthcare system that you work in, working with the underserved, having the case mix that you have, the variety of pathology. And I think for a lot of the audience, they're coming to train and learn cardiology and become great cardiologists, but you know they also are essentially stepping into the next phase of their lives. And Nick, you said you have a 10-month-old, and earlier you spoke about what it's been like being a fellow and raising a family in Dallas, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, especially because I've got a kid and I've got two more on the way. So what's that been like? So, you know, Ahmed, as you know better than I do, there's no way you can ever prepare for how your kids change your life. And we, regardless of what your goals and aspirations are, cardiology is a demanding job. And, you know, the first, I have an incredibly supportive spouse who is second to no one in the world, and I would not be able to do it without her. But I really like that not only is our program director and our program supportive of having a family, but all of my co-fellows are amazing. And, you know, there have been times where I've had to leave sooner rather than I'd like to, to get home. And our co-fellows always support that. And it's universal amongst all of us. We would all be in that place for each other without hesitating. And so, yes, fellowship is busy, but it's totally doable. And I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. I mean, it's important to have not only life inside the hospital, but you have to have life outside the hospital because that helps give me perspective to take care of all these patients. And thinking about how I would behave if my kid were sick changes how I treat my patients and how I treat when it's their son or their mom or their dad. And I think that impacts in ways that's just really, really important for all of us. Yeah. And I just wanted to thank you guys so much for joining the show. This is an incredible opportunity for us. Case reports are just a wonderful way to learn cardiology, but it's also a wonderful way to explore different aspects of cardiology that we may not be privy to. As I mentioned to you guys, I'm really like New York and Baltimore, and I haven't really been outside. Definitely during my medical life, I've basically been in Baltimore. And to hear about the pathology that you're seeing, that you're able to take care of patients, is just incredible to see the different aspects of cardiology, this, you know, syphilitic aritis, which I have not seen, and just really opened my eyes to that on the differential. I will never forget it. We don't see Chagas. We're talking about Chagas. Like, it's your bread and butter, something that I'll, I haven't seen. This is just incredible to hear that perspective, but even more so the tenderness that you kind of refer to your patients. And I could see you're not just talking about the pathology, but you're also talking about how you help them afford the care that you could provide. There's a tone in their voices, the way you describe your patient population that's just so tender and endearing. And again, a really, really, really wonderful for me to hear personally. So and thank you. Listening to this conversation, I have one request and one comment. My one request is, you know, this, of course, episode is part of the recruitment series in collaboration with the ACC, but please definitely, definitely 
call us back up and, you know, teach us about a case of Chagas and cyanotic adult congenital heart disease and, and some of the other things that you see. So if you have an open invite to come back to Cardinals later on. And the comment was that seeing these cases are so enriching because I haven't thought about syphilitic iritis since I studied for step one, probably. But in preparing for this episode, I read about it and I learned that a hundred years ago, the, the most common cause of angina was a syphilitic coronary osteal disease rather than atherosclerotic disease. And, you know, as, as Osler famously said, and I'll update this quote, uh, he or she who knows syphilis knows medicine. And that's certainly true for cardiology as well. So thank you so much for teaching us. Thank you for your perspectives on Dallas and Parkland and life inside and outside the hospital. You guys were just tremendous. Yeah, thank yeah, you guys thank you so guys much. For having us. You guys yeah. have just been just pure joy to work with. So thank you guys so much. And yes, we have endless cases of anything you want. <laughs> if it's in the textbook, one of us has seen it here. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, one of our one of our attendings who's actually been working here for 20 plus years was actually saying that every time she rotates through the CCU at Parkland, she sees something she's never seen before, which is just crazy to me. That's amazing. It's it's been pretty awesome. I have this distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Peterson, who is not only our program director, but an expert in echocardiography and valvular disease. She's going to provide this closing segment on the expert cardio nerd perspective and review, as well as a few brief remarks on our fellowship program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Thanks for the introduction, Nick. And to the cardio nerds, thanks for having us on the show today. I'm Gail Peterson, the Cardiology Fellowship Program Director at UT Southwestern. You just heard from three of our fellows, Shreya, Nick, and Sonia, about a patient with severe aortic regurgitation. There are several interesting aspects to this patient's disease. But what I love most about this particular example is that the physical exam provided the first clue that aortic regurgitation was the etiology of the patient's problems. The wide pulse pressure on exam not only provided a clue that aortic regurgitation could be an etiology, it also led to the team to consider that the disease process was chronic. The wide pulse pressure in chronic severe aortic regurgitation is due to increased stroke volume resulting in elevated arterial systolic pressure along with a rapid fall in diastolic pressure from blood returning to the left ventricle through an incompetent valve. And this leads to the peripheral signs detected on physical exam. Ahmet and Nick spoke about some of these peripheral signs, including Duazier's sign and water hammer or Corrigan pulse. But there's several other cool findings in chronic aortic regurgitation, including the patient's head bobbing in sync with the aortic pulse, de Musset sign, systolic pulsation of the uvula, Mueller sign, pistol shot sounds that are loud and heard over the femoral artery, Trabet sign, and Quinky's pulse, which is capillary pulsation of the nail beds. Findings in auscultation that point to severe aortic regurgitation include a soft S1, soft because the severely increased left ventricular end diastolic pressure results in the mitral valve closing early before the onset of systole. Murmurs of severe aortic regurgitation are often holodiastolic, but are shortened, as in this case, when there is equilibration of the aortic and LV diastolic pressures. The short murmur happens when aortic regurgitation is acute or when it results in decompensated heart failure. In cardiology, we like to use imaging to supplement our exam, and the team was able to obtain a full echo quickly. 
The study was remarkable for a dilated left ventricle supportive of a non-acute process, a dilated ascending aorta, and a thickened trileaflet valve. Color Doppler was consistent with severe AI, with prominent flow convergence and a wide regurgitant jet. Other findings consistent with severe aortic regurgitation include holodiastolic flow reversal in the abdominal aorta, a dense continuous wave aortic regurgitant signal, and a short pressure halftime, which, as Shreya pointed out, correlates with a short diastolic murmur that Nick heard. Dan eloquently described the holodiastolic flow reversal that occurs in the aorta and the magnitude of the regurgitant pulse Doppler flow, in this case more than 40 centimeters per second, also supports severe aortic regurgitation. Finally, this patient had diastolic mitral regurgitation evident. This happens when the LV diastolic pressure exceeds the left atrial pressure. The hemodynamics in our patient confirmed the exam and echo findings, with the most remarkable findings being the markedly elevated and equal aortic and diastolic and LV and diastolic pressures. So going back to the physiology, which we know that chronic aortic regurgitation is characterized by excessive preload and also excessive afterload. The excess preload is related to the regurgitant volume from the incompetent aortic valve. The increased afterload is due to the combination of an increase in left ventricular wall stress from the regurgitant volume and elevated systolic blood pressure that results in an increase in total forward stroke volume. When aortic regurgitation is not acute, the LV can adapt to the volume overload by developing eccentric hypertrophy, which in turn helps maintain normalized wall stress. The combination of LV dilatation and hypertrophy allows systolic function to remain preserved, usually over a long time. We don't know how long our patient had severe aortic regurgitation, but we do know over time compensatory measures become insufficient to maintain normal cardiac function. Symptoms develop when the left atrial pressure increases late in the disease process, and a small increase in the regurgitant orifice area or filling pressures may be sufficient to tip a patient from relative compensation to clinical heart failure. And once a person becomes symptomatic, there can be a rapidly progressive downhill course. It's uncommon for chronic aortic regurgitation to present with symptoms in this day and age because most of our patients are diagnosed early enough in the course of disease that routine echo surveillance allows for timely referral of surgery. Symptoms are an indication for surgery, but for most patients, LV dysfunction develops before the onset of symptoms. As Shreya mentioned, left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50% is an indication for surgery as optimal post-surgical outcomes are obtained when the surgery is performed before the LVEF becomes abnormal. And surgery is also reasonable when the left ventricular end diastolic dimension reaches 50 millimeters, as greater dimensions are associated with worse post-surgical outcomes. Severe symptoms and LV dysfunction, both of which our patient had, are independent risk factors for post-surgical survival. Indications for medical therapy in the setting of chronic aortic regurgitation are for treatment of hypertension, preferably with vasodilating drugs, and in the short term to improve the hemodynamics while preparing for surgery in symptomatic patients. But in symptomatic patients, medical therapy is not a substitute for aortic valve replacement. Diagnosing aortic regurgitation is half the fun, but the team was also able to consider what led to the patient's state. One of the many advantages of working at Parkland is that we get to think big when it comes to differential diagnoses. As Sony pointed out, many of the causes of aortic regurgitation could be excluded based on echo imaging in labs. A good relationship with the patient, along with a careful history, led to the team's consideration for syphilitic aortitis, 
allowing for appropriate treatment of syphilis rather than simply surgically treating the valvular disease. The hallmark of cardiovascular syphilis is aortitis. During secondary syphilis, the spirochetes settle in the vasovasora and initiate an adventitial perivascular inflammatory infiltrate with plasma cell and lymphocyte predominance. This inflammatory reaction eventually results in obliterative endarteritis, adventitial scarring, and patchy medial necrosis. Intimal involvement includes diffuse atherosclerotic changes with a gross wrinkled or tree bark appearance, which can sometimes be associated with calcification that can be seen radiographically. These changes of the aortic wall produce a diffuse and focal weakening, and the patient can develop aortic dilatation and aneurysm formation. Other associated findings include aortic regurgitation and coronary osteostenosis. Our patient went to surgery a few days after presentation and did well in the postoperative period. The surgeon described the classic tree bark pattern seen in syphilis when he opened up the aorta. And so the clinical picture, the markedly abnormal RPR, and the consistent pathologic findings led to the diagnosis of syphilitic aortitis and fovulitis, and the patient was treated appropriately with penicillin. Well, as Sonia pointed out, UT Southwestern is relatively unique in that we have three distinct training environments. You heard about Parkland, which is a large safety net hospital. The new Parkland Hospital is just five years old with state-of-the-art technology designed to provide excellent care to the vulnerable patients of Dallas County. Parkland has the busiest emergency department in the country. And as Nick mentioned, patients with a wide range of cardiac disorders walk through the door. Our tertiary care hospital, Clements University Hospital, opened in 2014. It has 462 beds with a 290-bed expansion set to open this fall. Here, our fellows care for complicated patients with advanced heart failure and complex valvular and congenital heart disease. We're also fortunate to care for our veterans at the Dallas VA Hospital, which is the second largest VA in the country with busy EP and cardiac cath labs. Our clinical enterprise is vibrant and continually growing, and so there's no shortage of number or variety of experiences. Our fellows spend a minimum of 24 months in the clinical realm and devote dedicated time for scholarly activities in the third year. There's flexibility in the second and especially the third year, so we are able to tailor the training experience to the unique career goals of our fellows. We are a large fellowship program. Each class has nine fellows, and we have over 40 fellows combined when we add in our advanced fellowship training programs. We also have a dedicated faculty who are invested in education and mentoring. There are several formal didactic sessions per week, including the Popular Journal Club, where faculty experts, many of whom are on the editorial board for circulation, help dissect and debate the literature. We have a proven track record of mentoring. Our fellows routinely present at national meetings, sit on national committees, and have first author publications. Our mission is to develop future leaders in cardiology, graduates who are lifelong learners and educators who provide clinically excellent and compassionate care, and who want to make a larger impact on the field of cardiovascular disease. Our fellows are collegial, professional, intellectually curious, and culturally sensitive. You will find a cardiology division that is collaborative and supportive. We are a true family of fellows and faculty. For those considering a career in cardiology, we hope you'll consider joining the family at UT Southwestern for your training. And to the cardio nerds, please keep doing what you're doing. We had so much fun spending the evening with you, and we appreciate and share your enthusiasm for resident and fellow education. 
It's been an honor to be among your talent and to be included with the other remarkable fellowship programs participating in this case series. Thanks. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardinals Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Dodds, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Hey guys, we're calling in from Dallas, Texas at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Wait, was I not supposed to start? Were you guys supposed to start? Honestly, go ahead. I am so yeah, sorry. That was great. <laughs> I got really excited. No, I love the enthusiasm. That was perfect. We just got a lot of bloopers. I'm just going to shut up for a while. Wait, who was that Sonia or was that Shreya? That's really Shreya. important. Shreya.